I have a YouTube channel where we uh, post little clips from discipleship we've been teaching during the week. If you want to catch up and find out what they've been being taught, you're welcome to go there. Also, uh, we taught about the seven letters to the seven churches, and uh, I didn't know how much time I'd be able to spend, but I thought I, I'd show you some slides of these seven churches today. Uh, I've had a couple trips over that area of Turkey and photographed it. And uh, uh, as it turned out, it was just much easier just to upload them as a slideshow on those on that YouTube channel. So if you're interested in seeing those and, and recapping those uh, seven letters to the seven churches, you can go to that channel. Just type in my name on YouTube and it'll come up and um, you'll be able to go there. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. It's an amazing realization that the Father sent Jesus as a baby into the darkest place on earth, and he felt that it was worth the risk to send that child, uh, defensive, defensive little baby, with no police protection, no military protection. In fact, uh, as almost as soon as he came, the king of the, the country got his elite troops and sent them into the town where Jesus was born and massacred everybody of that age to try to get to him. So the warfare for Jesus was immediate. It was from conception to the cross. Jesus was, uh, came by himself like a bubble of light in a sea of darkness, and everything is dark. And it was prophesied that the darkest place was the land of Zebulun, which is uh, the Galilee area, and said, I'm going to send him there, and he's going he's to work. His ministry is going to be in the very shadow of death. You can imagine. I mean, and God's not afraid. He's, he knows what he's doing. And here he sends this defensive, defenseless baby into the darkest place on earth. And Jesus navigates this war that is unleashed against him. Imagine being such a threat to the government that the government sends crack troops into your village to kill you. That's how big of a threat you are. And that's what happened to Jesus. And, and it didn't stop there. That was just the beginning. And, and uh, he's raised in a very difficult place. And as he's going forward toward the purpose of God, which is the cross, the enemy lobs everything at him that he can. The enemy tries to stop him from every angle. And um, one time I, I, I went to a, a Salvation Army store and I, I bought a 25-cent Bible. And, and I sat down with an orange marker and I marked out every time the enemy tried to hurt Jesus or hinder his purpose, prevent him from doing what he was called to do. And I just marked it out in orange. I didn't read it. I skimmed it. Took me about an hour to do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just mark it out in orange ink every time the enemy threw something at Jesus to hurt him or to prevent him from doing what he was called to do. I was amazed as I fanned that New Testament how orange it was. It was constant warfare. 
he was, the enemy was trying to stop him. The enemy was throwing everything he could at him. You could even see a point where the devil himself actually appears to Jesus in the wilderness and even takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple, the corner of the temple, right downtown Jerusalem. And the devil can't even push him off. He can't touch him. He can't do anything. He can suggest. He can tempt him. But he can't physically do anything. He's limited on what he can do. But uh, he's not limited in terms of temptation and offenses. Uh, and there's lots of those. You know, the devil's limited on what he could do to you. I mean, if he could kill you, he would have done that by now. You wouldn't have gotten as far as you've gotten. I mean, he would have taken you out. But there's limits on what he can and cannot do, just the same way that there are limits on what he could do to Jesus. But what he did to Jesus, he also does to you. And there's, there's a thing called offenses. Offenses are like little traps, little snares. And it's a, it's a hunting term for those who are interested in hunting. I remember as a boy going to school, and on the way to school, I would set little uh, snares in the fields on the way to school and then check them on my way home and take fresh rabbit home to my dad. He loved that. And I'd catch lots of rabbits because I figured I could see where, they were, where their paths were in the snow, and I was always catching rabbits for my dad using a little snare. Well, there's a, there's a snare. There's, a, there's something the enemy's always working to try to catch you. They're always trying to trip you up. And, and it happened to Jesus. That was what was orange. Uh, one of the things that surprised me about how orange it was was that most of the attacks that the enemy lobbed at Jesus came through people. Almost all the orange was what he did through people, through people who were close to him, through, through his family members. It was his family members that said he was crazy. It was his family members tried to kidnap him, take him back home because they thought he lost his mind. It was his own synagogue, his own church, so to speak, where they tried to throw him over the cliff because they were offended. And that, that actually happened twice. And he went back and offended him with the same thing twice. Amazing. And it's like his whole church turned against him and wanted to throw him off into the garbage dump. It was his own disciples that betrayed him. It was his own disciples at one time that abandoned him. It was his own denomination that had him killed. And they were set at, almost from the very beginning, they were determined, the religious leaders, be like your denominational leadership, trying to, trying to kill him because he was doing what God told him to do, saying what God told him to say. And, and it was just constant warfare. And then Jesus turns around, this is where it applies to you. He turns around, he says, don't be surprised uh, when what they do to me, they'll do to you. And so you're, a, you're at risk. You're in a war. There's a constant war against you, no matter how nice you are. And you could even say, I'll lay low and I won't rock the boat. I won't say anything. I won't do anything. I'll just kind of say, it won't matter. It won't matter. There's a target painted on you because of Jesus in you. It's not even personal. It's not even about you. It's about Jesus. The enemy just hates Jesus. And anything he can do to stop him, anything he can do to stop him from growing in you or taking you anywhere or doing anything in your life, he wants to offend you. There are snares. There are, there are traps laid for you to fall into. And it happens to all of us. It happens to me. It happens to each one of us. 
In, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, now this is in Reading, Jesus says it's impossible, but that offenses come, but woe to through whom they come. But it's, a, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to get through this Christian life and not be offended, not be tripped up. Here you are, you're on this race trying to make your way to heaven. You just want to get your big toe across the line, get home free, get into heaven. But there's a war, there's a battle between here and heaven. And he says, all the way, th all the way through this race, there's someone trying to trip you in the race. And it happens. And there's no way to prevent it from happening. You can't stop it from happening. So what I want to teach today is, is how to offense-proof your life, not to, not to stop it from happening, but when it does happen, there's some things you can do that, that Jesus did and his disciples did that allowed them to keep going no matter what the enemy lobbed at them. How many would be interested in offense-proofing their life? If you can, uh, can rust-proof a car, can you offense-proof a Christian? You know, here you are, you say, well, I'm just starting to... I'm just uh, walking with God. I, I'm falling in love with him. I'm going to church. I found a church. I, I'm going there. And then stuff happens. People do things and say things that offend you and blow you out of the water. And, and you could say, if that's church, if that's Christianity, I'm quitting. I'm just going to stay home. Well, you can do that, but you'll still be offended. Something, somebody will get through to you. There's people everywhere. There's just no way to avoid it. He said it's impossible. Tell the person next to you, it's impossible. Yeah. Even if you're a young guy, young gal, it's going to happen. It happens to kids. Uh, we were talking among our, the discipleship group this week. Here they are. They're just all these beautiful young people. And every one of them have been hurt. Every one of them have had stuff thrown at them from people, people who are close to them that try to blow them out of the race, try to get them to, to sit it out. It happens. And so Jesus, he's the first one. He's the prototype of the first Christian who navigates the race, runs the, runs it, does the war, goes, goes through the gauntlet of allowing all this stuff to happen. And then he turns around and he says, this is what you do. And so when, he when he's talked about turning the other cheek or blessing those who curse you, praying for those who despitefully use you, that's, that's his warfare technique. That's how he keeps from being offended. He's, a, he's proactively doing good to those who treat him bad. And it's, it's the way that he won the race so that he could get to the very end of it. And so I thought this morning we'd take a few minutes and just remind you that you're in a war. It's, it will happen. It will happen as sure as you're alive. Uh, no way to stop that. But there's some things that can, you, can, you can do that will keep you from being blown away. So let's look at that. Let's go to 1 Peter. First Peter, chapter 3. I can't tell you the number of people that I've met who fell in love with someone and then find out that that person's not whole and that person's got issues. And next thing you know, there's conflict in the marriage and difficulty with navigating that whole thing. And, and that's, that's like... One of the, the favorite tricks of the enemy is to try to get people to be blown away, get out of the race, stop this whole Christianity thing. And he does, and he uses marriage. 
And uh, Peter, he starts off in verse 1, chapter 3. He's talking about wives. Then he gets down in verse 7. He's talking about husbands because there's a lot of rub. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of offenses. Uh, it just seems like as soon as you start getting on fire, you start moving towards the things of God, someone close to you, someone who you're married with or someone in your home or someone in your family, could even be your dad, could be your mom, will do something that just kind of blows you away. And it happens. It happens all the time. And um, isn't it interesting that when you read the book of Job, there's this contest between God and the devil. And the devil says, I know people. Uh, you, you've got Job nicely protected, but if you touch his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, no, he won't. I know Job. He says, well, I know people. I know people. You touch their junk, they'll, they'll leave you. They'll blame you. They'll, they'll throw in the towel. I'm walking with you. I've seen it happen so many times, and it does. He says, not Job. Go ahead. You can touch his junk, but don't touch him. And that's what happened. And next thing you know, he lost everything. And, and Job worships the Lord. He says, but I know people. You make them sick. You touch their health. You touch money or health. You touch those two things, and they'll leave you. They'll cancel out. They'll quit the race. He says, I know people. He says, but I know Job. He won't do that. He says, you watch and see. He says, okay. He says, you can touch his health, but you can't kill him. And next thing you know, his health was, was uh, decimated. Job doesn't curse God, but it's close. It's tough. It's a tough thing. And then all of a sudden, Job's wife walks in and sees him sitting in a puddle of pus and says, why don't you curse God and get it over with? Isn't that interesting that the, the enemy used his wife momentarily to try to tip the scales in this cosmic conflict that's taking place. Why don't you just curse him and get it over with? Isn't it amazing that he would use someone like his wife? Now, what it doesn't say, Job didn't divorce his wife. He didn't say, there, you've been used of the devil. I'm, I'm done with you. You can keep reading. You find out they had long-term marriage, and there are many kids after that, and, and, and so that didn't happen. But the enemy has used my mouth to hurt my wife. The enemy has used my friends to hurt me, and, I, and he's used me to blow some of my friends out of the water. He likes to use people who are close to us because it has a special effect of really causing you to want to quit the race. And so marriage isn't the problem. You don't get rid of your spouse because momentarily they've been used of the enemy. It's impossible, but that it happens. It will happen. There's just no way that you can guarantee that it won't happen. Uh, Jesus said it's impossible. Offenses will come, and they come through people who are close to us. Paul's writing, or Peter's writing to a church, and he's writing about marriage. He's writing about husbands and wives because that's where the rub is so often in our lives. But look at this in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you. So he enlarges it. He's not just talking about husbands and wives uh, at this moment, verse 8. He's including the church. Finally, all of you, be of one mind. Have compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. 
not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you're called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So what he just did is he just moved from marriage, where that's a, a major source of conflict that tries to prevent us from being all. Some people said, you know, I could be a better Christian if it wasn't for people. If it wasn't for all the people in my life, I could, be, I could really shine as a Christian. Well, there's no way to avoid the people. There's no way to avoid the offenses. It's going to happen. It's, it's impossible, but they come. Even in church. So you found yourself a nice little church, and then somebody says something, somebody does something, and it just make, it makes you steam. And you go home, and you're steaming all the way home, and you're thinking, boy, why did I end up in that church? I could have I gone somewhere else, and I wouldn't have this problem. Well, good luck with that. Try to find a church where there's no one there who will offend you. It just doesn't exist. You end up meeting in a phone booth. It's just you. I'm going to church today, and it's just me and me and my phone booth. There's just no way that you can pick a church perfect enough that there won't be issues, that there won't be somebody who will say something and do something. People say the wrong thing at funerals. They say the wrong thing at weddings. They say the wrong things. People say the wrong things a lot. How do you avoid it? Do you just build a wall around yourself, put some plexiglass, live your Christian life in a cage? That'd be a funny cartoon, you know, where the whole church is just made up of cages. And I think the singing would be better probably too, but well, I, do, I hope it didn't offend anyone by that. I don't think there's a way. I think, I think the way to do it is to go forward knowing that it's going to happen. Because what really blows us away is the fact that it does happen and it so surprises us. Well, that, that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen among church people. And those people were Mennonites. They were supposed to be the stock of the earth, the people of the book. And it happened to me through them. Well, of course. Why? Because that's where the, the enemy is going to work through people. He's going to work through people who are close to you. There's just no way to avoid it. Where's the good news in this pen, right? <laughs> But you know that I'm telling you the truth on this. There's just no way. But there is a way to offense-proof your life in marriage and in church. And with family, rel with relatives and in our community, there's a way to keep moving. And stuff will happen, and, and you can pick up and keep moving. And so let's, let's explore what that, that's about. And so part of it, he says, keep tenderhearted. Don't harden your heart. Don't build a wall around yourself. Be courteous because it's easy to lip off. It's easy to, to grow an attitude. Love as brethren. Be as move into compassion. Compassion is, is stopping and considering and saying, look, I'm not whole and I've, I've hurt people uh, and this person's having a hard time and they're struggling and they lashed out and they took my parking spot and, and uh, so you, what happens is you just realize they're just having a hard time. I'll, I'll have compassion. I, it's a little bit of understanding. They're going through a difficult time. But here's what really kills it. And I, we've seen this wreck churches. I've seen it wreck marriages. I've seen it wreck friendships. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. There's something in our flesh 
that wants to do back to others what they do to us. If they do this to me, I'm going to do the same thing right back, maybe a little harder, to teach them a lesson. And if they say this about me, I'll say this about them. That's the reviling. He says, now, what you do is you don't return evil for evil. You don't revile when you've been reviled. On the contrary, what you do is you bless them. Well, that doesn't make sense, and it doesn't feel natural. Someone says something bad about you, and you actually bless them. They do something that hurts, and you turn around and say, now, how can I bless them? Watch your heart. You don't say, well, bless them with a brick. You, he's teaching us. Peter's actually summarizing what Jesus taught him in terms of warfare. You're called to be, you're called to be a, a source of blessing. And when someone says something bad to you, you have to find a way to bless them, find a way to communicate grace to them. They do something bad to you. You're to, you're to pre be proactive in actually blessing them. It's one thing to stop the process of reviling back or hurting back. Say, say that's all you did. You just didn't lash out back. You didn't respond, which is a natural reflex. And you just stop the negative from going back as a ref, uh, reflex. That's half the war. You've done great. If you just don't lash back, you don't say anything back, that's half the battle. But it's not winning the battle. It's not going to offense for a few. You can only do that so long, and after a while, you'll quit, and you'll end up, you'll do something bad to them because they did something bad to you. But to actually go the other way and find a way to bless them, do something positive, that's, that's kind of like something Jesus would do. I mean, that's serious Christianity. That's not easy to do. You might be able to wrestle your flesh and say, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. Well, that's great. But to go the other way, now you're cooking with gas. Now you're going somewhere. Well, watch what happens here. Not re returning evil for evil, tip for tat, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Know that you're called, you're called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Ah, what if everything that bad that happens to you and everything that they say about you that's bad, and you actually don't do the negative and you go positive on you and you bless them, you get a blessing from God in heaven. Some kind of blessing is going to manifest in your life. You'll actually, you'll actually get blessed. That's pretty powerful incentive. Not easy to do, but it is powerful, powerful incentive. That's the way that God, God says, now I can bless them because they blessed others, especially when they didn't, des they didn't deserve it. When I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite things on Saturday morning is... Uh, I'd go down to the old five-and-dime Woolworths store and the big old wooden floors and the massive candy case and amazing toy section. And we'd just have our little allowance and we'd walk in. I just loved the smell of the place. But the thing that thrilled me is I love these giant cash registers. The cash registers are almost as big as this pulpit. Great big, huge keys on it. And, and when you bought something, the lady would, little lady would be on a stool, and she'd be pushing down on those big keys, and it would go cha-ching. It was just a glorious sound, the sound of money, the sound of an, uh, something good coming out of, coming your way. You were able to buy something and take it home, some kind of new toy or uh, some kind of bag of candy or something, cha-ching. Well, 
I went through a time where it just seemed like one thing happened to me after another. People were saying things against me or doing things that were hurting me and, and trying to stop me from going on with the Lord. And I read this verse. And it says, if you bless them, you'll inherit a blessing. And so the way I kind of tricked myself into feeling good about what was happening is anytime they did something bad to me, but I actually did something good back to them, in my head, I would go, cha-ching, cha-ching. And it just reminded me that a blessing just came my way. Something good, before the day is out, something good, God's going to send something my way that's just going to make it all sweet. It's going to make it all worthwhile. So I would, I would, uh, they would say something, and I would say something positive back, and then in my heart, I'd walk away, and I'd say, cha-ching. I just, I just inherited a blessing. Now, I learned not to do this when I'm fighting with my wife. This does not work. This, this, uh, if, especially if she hears me cha-chinging <laughs> down the hallway. Uh, cold sugar that night. And so um, I learned not to do this out loud. But in my heart, I would cha-ching. God's going to bless me. And what it does, when you start looking for that blessing, looking for something positive to come, it kind of takes away some of the pain and some of the frustration. And why did this have to happen? Why did they do this to me? What's wrong with them? Why can't I just go to church? Why can't I just, you know, uh, it's, it's like the the... the the lady who goes in the, the bedroom and the guy's in bed and she says, come on, you have to get up, you have to go to church. And she, he says, I don't want to. He, you have to go. He says, I don't want to. Well, come on, you have to get up and go to church. He says, I don't, I don't like those people. Those people don't like me. He says, but you have to go to church. He says, give me one good reason. She said, you're the pastor. <laughs> Old jokes, right? Stuff happens, but there's a blessing in it for you if you respond the right way. And that's what Peter's teaching here. Now watch what he does. He, he starts quoting David. He goes into Psalm. I forget the Psalm here. Uh, let's see if I can find it. I think it's Psalm 34. There it is, Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. So he's quoting David, Psalm 34. But the first 50 Psalms are written by David, and almost all of them have this line in it, nobody likes me. Everyone's speaking against me. We think of David as being the most popular king of all time, but when you read his psalms, it's like everyone, I got sick and they wished I died. <laughs> he's having a hard time. Here he's supposed to be the most popular king, but in his own day, he said, nobody in my courts, you know, people are against me. They're speaking against me. And I went, I sent flowers to their mother when she was sick, and they, they wished I was going to die, and they were telling people, I hope he dies when he gets sick. Man, it was tough, tough, tough for, de for David. So David, what he writes here is profound because it's a key to keeping your heart tender, keeping your heart from being offended. Listen to what David has to say. This is his advice. Peter's quoting it because he believes it's a word for the church. Now listen. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Now, here's what, here's what Peter thought was worthwhile for us. This, you know, the line where it says, for he who would love life and see good days, that sounds like, that sounds like a song, like a lyric for a song. You know, I'm not going to sing to you, but, but he that would love life and see good days, you know, it just sounds bright. It sounds like you're walking on the sunny side of the street. He who would love life and see good days. How many would love to have that as your motto? I love life and I'm seeing good days. I'm, I, I love life and I'm seeing good days. Here's how you get there. Watch your mouth. Don't, don't lip off. Keep, us, keep your tongue from speaking evil, especially when you've been spoken evil against. Your lips from speaking deceit. And the idea of deceit here, it's funny. When somebody does something bad to me, there's something in my flesh that when I do something bad back to them, I put a little spin on it. I embellish it a little bit. I make it sound like it was a little worse than what it was. And it happens almost every time. And so he says, don't go there. Don't embellish it. Don't make it worse than what it was. And he says, now, turn away from evil. That's your, your tendency to do harm back. Turn back. Turn away from evil and do good. Be proactive and find something good to do. Now, this is not easy, but when somebody does something bad to you and you actually invite them out for coffee after and you pay for coffee, it wins the war. There's a blessing in it for you. And it keeps your heart from being offended. And they can't quite figure it out because they know they know that you hit that rough patch, and they did this, and, and not only did you not seem to respond, but you actually did something good. You took them out for d down to Amity, and you bought coffee, and, and uh, they're, they're puzzled by that because they know something was naughty, something was wrong. But you've actually done this because you want to love life and see good days. You know what's amazing about what we're reading here? Here's what David concluded. You can actually love life and see good days, not based on what people do to you, but only based on how you respond. The, the ball is in your court. The power, the power of personal happiness is in your hands, not theirs. I see people that it's like their world has fallen, you know, stoved in, the bottom has fallen out of their world, and you say, well, what's wrong? They say, well, this person, you don't know what they're doing. They're saying this, they're doing this, and, and it's just wrecked my life. That's possible. I, I understand that. But here he's saying, he's saying that if you are the one who's making them cups of tea, and you're the one that's cooking their, their favorite meal, and you're the one that's thinking of little thoughtful things to do to them, you can actually continue to love life and see good days and they have no effect on your personal happiness. It's not in their hands. It's in your hands. Is that what he's saying? Then if you say in verse 11 here, he says, um, I'll, I'll wait for them to come apologize to me. Well, you'll wait a long time. I can't tell you the number of people who've said, I'm just waiting for them to, to see what they did to me, and they come, they see that I'm, I'm indifferent, they see that I'm no longer relating to them, I'm no longer calling, I'm no longer on Facebook with them, I'm no longer friends with them, I'm waiting for them to say, hey, where'd you go? What, wh why'd you, why'd you, why'd, what did I do wrong? And then I'll tell them what they did wrong. 
David said, what you do is you're the one, you are the one who actually seeks peace. You're the one who pursues it. You're the one who's pursuing reconciliation. Now, I've done this. I've done this so many different times. It's always a freeing thing to be the one that's pursuing the relationship. It's the most freeing place to go. So he says, let him seek peace. That's on you. You know who should be the one to reconcile and make the phone call? The one that's the most spiritual. The one that wants to please God. The one that wants to walk on the sunny side of the street. The one who wants the blessing. The one who wants to be free from all the snares that happen in a relationship. They're the ones who should make the first phone call. Make the attempt to get back together again. You don't have to become best friends with them. You don't even have to hang out together. But it's a freeing thing to be able to be the one to initiate contact. I can speak from experience. And the reason you do it is verse 12, because Jesus is looking. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. And I, I, want, I want to do this to please Jesus. I want to do this because I know it means something to him. I want to do this because I know it's the way he is. I know he's looking. Verse 12 says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here's how I interpret this. The face of the Lord and the presence of the Lord are the same thing. There's been different times when I've acted bad back, and I've given them cold shoulder because they did this to me. And, they, and so rather than doing good, I've actually just kind of shut, shut them off. Next thing you know, I'm the one that loses the presence of the Lord. I'm the one that's going to church and there's nothing happening. Everyone else is having a good time except me. Because it shuts down something of the, of, the, of the presence of God in my life. I know it does in my marriage. I know it does with close friends. And so i got to keep that flowing. The way to do that is to read this backwards. <coughs> Doesn't matter what they do to me. I'm pursuing it. I'm going after this. I'm, I'm the one who's trying to reconcile. I'm the one that's looking for a way to bless them, give them a book, give them, give them uh, some kind of a note or a card or uh, remember their birthday in some way. I'm looking for a way to communicate grace to them because I want to be free. I want to be offense-proof. doesn't matter what they do to me. I'm a broken record. I've already chosen to forgive them. I've already chosen to move on. I've already chosen to do good to them. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, uh, he that offends me, I forgive. But if you offend the Holy Spirit, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, he won't forgive. But if you just back up for a second, Jesus already decided whoever, whoever lies about him or speaks bad about him, he's already decided on the front end, I'm going to forgive that. You can decide that and just say, I'm a forgiver. I'm a giver and I'm a forgiver. And you can actually slip through life and have bad things happen to you and not be pulled down by it, not be waylaid by it because you've already chosen to forgive on the front end. doesn't matter. You can't. I've even told people, I, it's too late. I already love you. You can't stop me from loving you. You can't stop me from giving to you. You can't stop me from praying for you. You can't stop me from always pursuing you. I've decided on the front end to do this. 
this is a different way to live Christianity. You're being proactive in the positive. This is serious Christianity. This isn't for wimps. This isn't for, for half-hearted Christians. This is serious Christianity. This is what Jesus did. It's how he navigated his race. And you have to decide if you're going to try it or not. Before this week is out, you'll be offended by somebody, something, something someone will say, something that they'll do. It'll happen. There's just no way. You can't be nice enough to avoid it. It will happen. It's happened to you already. I was teaching this one time to our congregation up north where I used to pastor and told people, if you, people who don't like you, they treat you bad. People you're, you're at odds with, make them, make them a pie. Make them a cake and send it to them. Well, that week I got like 34 cakes. And <laughs> kind of backfired on me. Sent a message to me. And what was really crazy about it is we only had about 20 families. That means some of them doubled up. Some of them sent two. That's an old joke as well. Let's live this way. Now, let me just say something before I stop. I'm preaching this message, but I'm not aware of any conflicts. I'm not aware that there's anything that's going on. I, I'm, I'm totally oblivious to that. So that's a good time to preach this stuff. If it was happening where I was under the gun, it would be one thing. Or if I knew there's a bunch of conflict in our midst, it would be another thing, I suppose. I don't think that's the case. I think these are good days. We're actually doing really well. I, I love the harmony. We've, we just ran through a patch of just incredible generosity, people out giving each other, people helping each other. Every time there's been a need, we see the need being met. It, these are actually good days. But I know there's, a, there's an enemy out there. And if he, could, if he could wreck this church and wreck our harmony and, and cause us not to be like-minded and cause us to say, that's it. if that's the way church is, I'm going to sit it out, he'd use offenses. It's, it's, it's inevitable. It's impossible. But it comes. And it could happen to you. How are you going to respond? That's the issue. Let's stand together. Thanks, Austin. Would you close yourself in? If you're new here, you could say, well, it hasn't happened to me yet. I, I have actually had a few good weeks here where I haven't had any problems at all. Well, stay with it. And somebody will say something. Somebody will do something that will make you fume all the way home. Why don't you decide today how you're going to respond when that day happens? Why don't you decide on the front end, say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to quit this race. I've done that before. 
missed out on a whole bunch of stuff, missed out on fellowship because somebody did something and it bothered me and I walked away. Can you just decide today, I'm a forgiver, I'm a giver, and I'm committed to Jesus. I want to do what he did so I can become what he became. I'm not quitting. I'm not quitting my marriage. I'm not quitting relationships. I'm going to win this thing. I'm going to win it on Jesus' terms. Moms and dads, you have to teach this to your kids. You have to show them how to navigate this because it's going to happen to them in school. It's going to happen to them in fireflies. It's going to happen to them somewhere sometime. And so you have, to, you have to teach them how to navigate it. No one can do that better than you. Commit now. Say, I'm not going to let my kids walk away. I'm going to learn. I'm going to show them how to win this thing. Father, we know, we know you're looking. We know you hear. You hear our hearts. You hear the dialogue of our hearts. You see our running this race. You see what's going on in our lives. Pray that you'd strengthen everybody in this race. Strengthen everyone in the war that they're in. Help us to be like you, we pray. We want you to be proud of us. We thank you for this reminder from your word today. Jesus' name.